Amen. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to be in verses 1 and 2 this morning of Ephesians chapter 5. In my humble opinion, I think that uh, the paragraph break or the chapter break here is unfortunate. I think that one and two should go with the verses that precede it. Um, now listen, the chapter uh, officials uh, did not, uh, were not inspired by the Holy Spirit necessarily. Uh, so they're, they're allowed to make mistakes and it doesn't make your Bible any less God's word or holy or right or infallible or inerrant or any of those such things. So I think these first two verses go with the ones before. Uh, so I'm going to preach them as such. And then next week we will get on then with chapter 5, uh, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, we'll get on with chapter 5, verse 1. I'm just kidding. We'll be on chapter 5, verse 3 next week. Um, and be on our way to finishing Ephesians, hopefully by the end of the year, is the goal. Um, you laugh, I'm being very serious. <laughs> so, but God is good, and shall he tarry, we shall finish Ephesians, and, uh, and such. So, let's, uh, let's jump right in. I'm actually going to start in verse 17 of chapter 4, because I think what Paul is doing here ultimately is he is summarizing in verse 1 and 2 what he has said in verse 17 through 32. So let's read that, and then we're going to kind of land then into verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Let's begin. Verse 17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Don't miss it. That was every single one of us. Verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, 
along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father, may, may our few brief moments studying and proclaiming and hearing your word be transformational to our desperately needy hearts for your glory. And we ask this in your, in your son's name. Amen. So as we look here at verse 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. I want to first take our minds to this word love, very quickly, and for a few brief moments. We live in a culture of ambiguously defined love. We live in a culture of ambiguously defined love. And the reason why I would start in the culture is because we have been so impacted by the culture. I mean, it's, it's inescapable. It's out there. We hear it everywhere we turn. Whether you watch TV or not, it's out there. Now, first of all, our culture likes ambiguity. It enjoys a lack of clarity and ultimately a questioning of any kind of absolute truth or black and white. The, they like this kind of fluidity. The, you even hear that term being used in the sexual revolution going on. They like fluidity, like things to, to, to not be nailed down. Why? Just a thought here. I think it might have something to do with the desire to have the freedom to make up truth whenever and however it best suits our self-gratification. <clears throat> it leaves room for me to define things as I go as would best fit me in the moment. <clears throat> so when it comes to love, it's no different. I think love is defined in our culture at least 6.9 billion different ways. Unfortunately, I don't think it's too much different in the church. Both within and without, love is protected as this wildly uncontrollable emotion that drives everything. If I feel loved by this person, then it must be. It must be loved. If I feel gratified by this person, then it must be love that I am being shown if I want to love a person in a particular way, how am, who are you and how are you going to stop me? I mean, it goes on and on and on of how we have kind of made love into this wildly uncontrollable emotion. We have defined it as such. But really, I think what we've done is we've taken this word love, and I think this again has creeped into the church. <clears throat> That love has really become just another word for worship of self. Expressed in the pursuit of ultimate self-gratification. What I mean by that is that love is nothing more than 
what is going to make me most gratified, happy, satisfied in the moment. And so you're loving me if you're making me feel that way. I'm loving you if I feel that way as well. So it's not about no matter how you feel, it's how I feel in what I'm doing to you, and vice versa. And you can see, I think, where that's kind of creeped into the church even. Where we tend to want to do things for other people that most gratify us. We want to say things to other people dependent on whether or not it will gratify me. So we shy away from some things and we embrace saying others. But as we look at this passage, we will discover that love is anything but ambiguous and is anything but worship of self. You see, our struggle, just like the rest of the world, is that we want to define love like intrinsically. Meaning we want to look inside of ourselves to define what is love. We want to look to our inner being and ask, how should we define love? But this is dangerous. This is why there is ambiguity. The reality is, this is why many of our hearts are always so weary and tired. It's because one day our heart loves holiness. And the God who defines holiness. And the next day we love tacos. And some days we hate more than we love. Why? Because our defining of love is is wrong. The truth is that love is not defined from within, but from without. We have to look to the one from whom love finds its origin, right? We have to look to God. You know, the church has been called, and we've, if, if you've read, or you've, I'm sure you've heard this, the church has been called to love God and love people. I would argue especially God's people. A special love for God's people, not to exclude any love for any other people, but love for God, love of people. Now the world around us would certainly affirm many of the fruits of this kind of love, right? Caring for each other, speaking the truth to each other. I mean, the world would affirm those things. We want that. The problem is not just, though, the lack of clarity and specificity as to what love is, but also there's a, there's a problem in the difference of motivation between us and the world. Why would we care for each other? Why would we speak the truth to each other? You see, our, our definition of love is very different because the motivation also for it is very different. And in a very real sense, Paul is summarizing everything that he has just said by these words. Imitate God by walking in love. Imitate God by walking in love. So he says all this in 17 and following. Therefore, imitate God by walking in love. This sounds quite similar to Jesus when he was asked about the greatest of the commandments. He says, essentially, love. What is the greatest of these commandments? By loving God and loving people. 
If you go back and study the Decalogue, study the Ten Commandments, what's going on there? There's, there's two groups there, really. There's ones that pertain to loving God and ones that pertain to loving people. And so Paul calls us here to walk in love. The first thought I want you to have is that we are to be imitators of God because you are His children. Because you are His children. You are His child. Be imitators of God. Look at verse 1. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Let me insert a quick thought here. Particularly to you men. I think in our culture, we've so like relegated warm thoughts and affection and, and emotion, like warm thoughts and affections to women, that we really have lost the weightiness, particularly for us men, when it comes to verse one. So just keep that in mind as we work through this. But the first thing I want you to see, I want you to note God's worthiness of imitation that's being implied here. Paul would not be instructing us, God would not be instructing us to, to imitate something that was not worthy of imitation. So first of all, we need to note God's worthiness of imitation. Let me remind you of a verse that we've looked at before in chap- Luke chapter 6, 25-26. It says this, uh, or 35-36 through 36 rather. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. What's he doing? What's Christ doing here? He's, he's commending the character of God as something that you is, first of all, is worthy of your imitation. He's saying God's kindness and mercy are to be the model of our conduct. We should look to there to see how we live and how we imitate. And we need to note that all good originates in the person, God. He is worthy of imitation. I think many times we either think what we do is ultimately worthy of imitation in and of ourselves, or we find something else that's worthy of our imitation more than God, and then we pursue that. So we first have to, I I would argue, be, be convinced of the worthiness of His imitation. If we're going to go down this road of being imitators of God. Let's talk a little bit more about this imitation language. It's, it's, it's all over the place. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Interesting that Paul would say, have the audacity to say even, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. How incredible of a statement. 
Um, Paul certainly is not saying that I even remotely compare to Jesus. But instead, but but indeed, though he still says, "Be imitators of me." What he's saying is, I am at least at some level worthy of imitation, as I am imitating Jesus. And then, for some, Paul also said in Hebrews thirteen seven, "Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God." Consider the outcome of their way of life. And what's he say? And imitate their faith. And imitate their faith. Again, what's he thinking? It's just crazy. He tells us in Ephesians, imitate God. Then he tells the Corinthians to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And then he or someone else tells the Hebrews to imitate their faith of your leaders after having considered the outcome of their way of life. So God intends to give us both the ultimate example of what is worthy of imitation and then to give us other examples underneath of that that are also worthy of imitation. I, think, I don't think God's doing anything crazy like going on here. Well, I think what he's doing is just giving us practical, daily, tangible examples that ultimately should feed this imitation of God. Because back in that Hebrews 13, 7, he says, remember your leaders, those who what spoke to you the word of God. So those who are teaching, those who are understanding, teaching, and living the word of God is what's being implied there. How's that being implied? The living? Because he says, consider the outcome of their way of life. And he doesn't say to to imitate every move they make, but to imitate their faith. Which is largely going to be expressed in action. I, I want to make an observation for us. I think one of our weaknesses, even in our church here, is a weakness of observation. You see, the idea of imitation requires observation. You have to see, you have to assess, and then imitate. You cannot imitate without first observing. Let me read to you another example of imitation from the Old Testament, Proverbs 6.6. 6. He says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Now, clearly the main thought in Proverbs 6 here is hard work. But the other thought here is consider her ways and be wise. He says the same thing, or not he, but God says the same thing in Hebrews 13, 7. Consider the outcome of their way of life. So he says consider her ways. What's what's consider her ways? Make an observation. To look, to watch, to watch carefully even, to assess, and then imitate that which is worthy of imitation. So we have to make observations if we're going to imitate. So think about, I, I was, as I was thinking through this, why, why might we struggle with making observations? Why might we struggle with that? 
I think it's probably because we have too much pride in that the way our outcome of life and the way we live life is just fine. That we just, okay, I'm good. So I don't need these pictures around me to go imitate. That, that I'm good. So it also say we have to be humble. Like the idea of considering their ways and imitating them is assuming a level of humility. It's assuming a level of they might have it better figured out than I do. That's certainly assumed in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God. Paul's assumption is that, is that God is worthy of imitation and that you need to imitate Him and not anything that you think is worthy of imitation besides that which is representative of God. So this is exactly what Paul is saying here, or at least implying in chapter 5, verse 1, is that we are to make an observation. We should open our eyes and watch. So I would just encourage you, as you think about this week, and we can spend some time, I'm sure, in house gathering on this, but how is, is my heart prone to observing with humility the examples that God's put around me. So this even goes back to like, when we talk about different members of the body, like having grace, like, like displaying their gifts to each of us. Like, so if someone is gifted in a particular area, like say mercy, then I should probably watch them and learn how to imitate their faith, their faith exercised in mercy. Or their gift of service. I could look at that and go, what is worthy of imitation in their servitude? Let me say this. It's just crazy to watch something in front of you that God is doing and that He is working and to walk away going, yeah, I don't know that there's anything in that for me. That just blows my mind. Blows my mind. One of the most, one of the biggest encouragements. Let me just be candid with you. One of the biggest encouragements to me has been the opportunity to watch other godly people, men, women, pastors, lay people, and go, "Wow, they got something I don't have." Like the outcome of their way of life is going to be better than mine. I should. What what kind of faith? What what are aspects of their faith that I don't have? And let me go do that. Now, now again, and in my, even in my own heart, there's still times where I'm like, well, I got it figured out better than they do. Well, sometimes that's true. Sometimes, and in some ways, that's true. But many times, depending on, particularly depending on who you're looking at, when you see those begin to line up with God, and you go, wow, I've been given a picture of, of something of God that is worthy of my imitation. Let me, let me imitate that, Father. So we need to work on this observation. And I think it begins with the heart posture 
of God has given me things that are worthy of observation, worthy of imitation, and I should be humble in approaching those. Now, going on in this passage, he says the reason that you should imitate is because you are his beloved child. Let's spend a few minutes here. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Because we're going to get we're, we're going to start getting into some motivation here. Why do we imitate God? You see a new relationship in the family of God serves as the basis of Paul's appeal to imitate God. And this relationship is based on God's saving work in Christ. So this new relationship with God and the family of God is the foundation, if you will. It's the basis for his appeal to now go imitate God. So he's not just saying, hey, you people, go imitate God. He's saying, no, you children of God, you who are now in the family of God, go imitate God. Now listen, it's at this point that if you deny the doctrine of election, that this passage loses its grandeur. The idea that we would be adopted as children of God means nothing if we simply did it of our own accord. But the fact that God would choose us and bring us into the family of God, this means something. That now this is the basis of the appeal. If it's our choosing alone and God in a helpless state then the appeal to imitate God must be to our grand ability to choose God. Instead, because God chose us and brought us into the family, it's God's doing, now the appeal is God's bringing us into the family as the basis for now we should imitate God. Now what Paul's doing here, guys, is not simply a comparison between father and children. He's not just saying that he's your father and and now you go be children. That's not his point. Again, he is signifying, like this signifies the basis, the foundation on which Paul then demands that that he, he commands us to be imitators. That we have been adopted into God's family and are his beloved children. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. That God's love has been poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. And since we have richly experienced that love, get this, that we should reproduce the family likeness. Do you get that? Because God in His own choosing has brought us into the family, pouring out His love on us that we now should go resemble and imitate and display the family likeness. 
The same generous forgiveness shown to us is the same generous forgiveness that we show to others. The same mercy that's shown to us is the mercy that we should show to others. The same truth that was spoken and set us free is the same truth that we should speak and help set others free. And yet, I think many of us spend days, myself included, not imitating God because we haven't first observed our adoption as His children. We still interact with the Father as though we're in some sort of meritorious relationship where we kind of earn our way into God and we kind of interact with Him in this very works-based understanding where I have to do things right in order for the Father to be my Father and to act as my Father. Instead of first observing that I have been adopted, have been brought into the family to be His child and to resemble His likeness. Listen, if if you and I would understand that we were not just some orphan gently playing with some Legos, but instead an enemy of the king, and yet he then proceeded to pay the punishment for your treason and then adopt you to be his son. If we understood that, who would not want to bear the likeness of that father? Who would not want to imitate that kind of father? I think we lose sight that we are his beloved children. I think that's what Paul's telling them them here, that the basis, that the reason why you should imitate and you even can imitate is because you have been brought to be his beloved children. So let me ask you this question. Have you richly experienced the love as a child of God? I know, as Baptists, we don't like this like experiential thing, but have you rich I think that's what Paul's getting at. Have you have experienced this being the beloved children of God? This is who you are. That's what Paul is it's been painting this picture of what it means to be a child of God. It's not some theological concept for us to chew on. It's a theological truth for us to live in. You're a child of God. Have you experienced that? What, here's what, I don't mean some little emotional high that kind of flitters and flutters and then disappears the next moment. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Last week, when we began to talk about the tenderness of God, like how we should be tender, but what's the basis of that tenderness? Like what's the, the motivation for that tenderness? What's the model for that tenderness? How is it we can be tender to other people? And we reflected on the fact that God is kind. That God has been tender towards us. That He has forgiven us. Like That this God of the universe who has been so offended would choose to show us nothing but tenderness. 
Does that do anything? Like, did that last week, does that even now stir up any kind of affections and reminders of the love that God has for you, my child? Like, does meditation upon the gospel stir your heart to richly experience the love of God as His child? Or is it just merely some religious thought? As Paul's saying, imitate God. Why? Because you're His loved child. That's who you are. You have been loved by the magnificent king of the universe. That's who loves you. Guys, if if your experience of the love of God is not rooted in the gospel of God, meaning that that when 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 you think about the love of God, if it's not rooted and tethered to the fact that He redeemed you out of bondage and sin and enemy state to be His adopted child through the blood of Jesus, then the love that you're experiencing or the emotional high could just as easily be produced by a really good dinner or a walk on the beach. And Paul is saying, imitate God. Because you are His loved child. And we are loved by God. And so we walk in love. A love particularly for God's people. The second thought here. So the first thought, right, was be imitators of God because you are His children. Then he goes on in verse 2 and says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The second big thought here is make the initiative to walk in sacrificial love for the church. Make the initiative to walk in sacrificial love for the church. Now, there's multiple thoughts in there that are going to flesh themselves out in multiple subpoints. I just don't give you subpoints, I rarely do that. He says, and walk in love. Let's work through this. Walk in love. If you're looking for a sub-point, there you go. Walk in love. Now let me, let me burst your bubble here a little bit. It is impossible to imitate God in everything. You realize that? It is impossible to imitate God in everything. But we need to move, though, beyond Ambiguity. So Paul's exhortation here to walk in love, follow me, explains more specifically what is involved in being such imitators. So you're going, how do I imitate God? What does that look like? What do I do? Paul's exhortation to walk in love is going to give us a picture of what it looks like to imitate God. Are you you seeing some, what are the greatest of these commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. And then now Paul's saying to be imitators of God by walking in love. You start seeing these connections. But what I want you to see in particular in this passage is that the two statements, imitators of God and walk in love, should be seen as parallel. 
They kind of right beside each other. To be an imitator of God is to walk in love, and to walk in love is to be an imitator of God. Now, so far, and from verse 17 and following, at the very least, Paul has been instructing us pretty comprehensively of how to live our lives. He's giving us this kind of, we live in this way, we speak the truth, and, and we, uh, we put away anger and malice and slander, and we, we do these kind of things. This is how we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We walk in holiness, not as the Gentiles do, in unholiness. And now we are told, I think in summary form, that all of this means that we live a life of love. So he says to walk in love. Now we've got to ask the question, well again, what does it look like to walk in love? How are we going to move away from ambiguousness? He says, Paul's very clear, he says look to Christ from the model of walking in love. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. But what does this walk in love look like? What does it look like to walk in love? Because see, if we're not careful, we'll define this however best suits our gratification for the moment. I will show love to this person because this, most makes, this makes me feel most loved. I'll serve this person in this particular way because it's what makes me most feel loved. So what does Paul say when we, when we get to at defining what this walking in love looks like? He says, look at Christ. Look at Jesus. Look at Him. Don't look beside you. Don't look inside you. Look at Christ. Guys, to walk in love means that our attitudes and our behavior are to be characterized by this grace of Christ. And he's saying this, don't miss this, that when we live this life of love that looks like Christ, we're imitating the Father. I mean, listen, think garden, right? Think made in the image of God. To fill the earth with His glory. So now when we look to Christ and model His love, we're imitating the Father, which is a reversal of all that has been marred by sin. So when we live this life of love, we're imitating the Father. But we see the love of the Father modeled in Christ's love. Now, the grand display of Christ's love is where? At the cross. The ultimate, grand, glorious display of His love is at the cross. So the imitation of God, I think Paul is telling us here, is ultimately an imitation of Christ. Why? How? Where does else say this, right? Colossians, right? He says that He's the exact imprint of God. He's the exact representation of God. And how does God show His love? He sacrifices His own Son for us. So the second thought there is look to Christ for the model of walking in love. 
Now, if we, again, if we press into this walking in love, the next kind of thought would be this. Walking in love will be costly and sacrificial. It'll be costly and sacrificial. Here's where we're going to start getting a little more uncomfortable. See, we're comfortable looking at Jesus going, He gave it all, right? And now we have to look this way. Walking in love will be costly and sacrificial. Listen, the sacrificial nature of Jesus' love for us is made explicit at the end of, cha- uh, end of verse 2 there. What's he say? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul here is capturing kind of this Old Testament sense of a sacrifice that is truly acceptable to God. Notice here that Christ willingly offered Himself as a sacrifice to the Father. And that sacrifice is fully pleasing to the Father. Like, like listen. He willingly offered Himself. Don't miss that. And don't miss the fact that it was Fully pleasing to the Father. Without either of those, you and I are headed to hell. With no hope. Willingly. And it was completely satisfying to the Father. So living a life then of love for us means this. It will be costly and it will be sacrificial. And that those two words, describing love, should characterize our relationships with one another, within the church. That this would define our relationships. That it would be costly, that it would be sacrificial. Even moms and dads, like are you leading your kids to a costly, sacrificial love for the body. You know, church, as we think through this, and we can flesh out this more later, but we talked a lot about this in 1 John. What does it mean to lay down your life for your brother or your sister? And we talked about how, like, I mean, it's easy for all of us to go, Oh yeah, you know, I would lay down my life if it came down to it, you know. But what about everything just short of actually physically dying for your brother or sister? What about the dying to self tomorrow? That's that's a that's a little harder than some theoretical or hypothetical situation where I might have to lay down my life when I live in America. Laying down our lives, being kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. That gets a lot harder. <laughs> Some of us would say, well, just shoot me now, right? Like, I'd rather just take the bullet. Because being kind and tender-hearted and forgiving towards some people is probably a lot harder for some of us. Living a life of love means growing in knowing the Father so that we might imitate Him to our brothers and sisters. 
So let me ask you to do this. Spend some time in reflection this week. Measure. what. So I want you to measure, spend some time measuring your walking in love. And I want you to ask these questions. What have you sacrificed? What has it cost you? I mean really cost you. It cost me some TV time. That doesn't count. <laughs> I mean, it might. I, I should be kinder and more tender towards you. It, for you, it might really cost you a lot. So I'll, I will back up and take that back. Measure. Right, and who are we measuring ourselves against, right? Christ. Listen, you're going to fail, okay? It's not going to be enough, Okay? Let me just give you that for a moment. Hang on to that. So, but not only should we generally walk this way, we're going to move on to the next thought. Not only should we generally walk in love that is costly and sacrificial, but I would think that if we're going to then walk in love as Christ did, that the burden to walk in love is on us. Let me, let me say this another way. We should make the initiative to walk in love. I mean, you and I have to seek out walking in love. Like, we have to take responsibility for walking in love. We have to be the one to initiate this walking in love. Where to see that at? Ephesians 5.2 And walk in love as Christ loved us and what? Gave himself up. Gave himself up. Right, so the verb, let's get a little geeky here, or nerdy here. Not geeky, it'd be nerdy here. Uh, verb, gave over, together with the reflexive pronoun himself. He gave over and himself. What is a reflexive pronoun? It's a pronoun referring back to the subject. So, Himself, He's saying that Jesus gave up Himself. Like, He chose, He's the one that willingly laid down His life on the cross. It indicates, like this idea here indicates that Christ took the initiative in handing Himself over to death. Do you get that? Like, that's crazy. But He didn't just willingly give himself over to die, even though as, as incredible as that is, but he gave himself over to bear the wrath of God, his Father, for you and for me. Now that's incredible. That he would willingly give himself away. And you see the agony of this in Christ, Right? In the garden, Father, if you will, let this cup pass for me, but, not, but nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. He's saying, Father, I'm willing, because ultimately I love and trust you. But if, if, if there's any other way, I know there's not, but if there is, please let this cup pass for me. But I trust you. And he says, I, your will be done. He went to the cross. 
as the willing victim. And he made the initiative to go to the cross not only by his giving himself up, but he did it on our behalf. So I would encourage you that if we are going to live as Christ, then we will take the initiative to walk in love for our brothers and sisters. But then he says something else here, right there at the end of that. He gave himself up for what? For us. For us. So walking in love, and we should not only make the initiative to walk in love, but walking in love will be for the benefit of others. Walking in love will be for the benefit of others. And gave himself up for us. Guys, the language for us is teaching us the nature of this sacrificial love. It's teaching us the kind of, how do we define the sacrificial love? What is sacrificial love? What is costly sacrificial love looks like? It looks like this. It looks like a substitution. It looks like a substitution for us. That Jesus, because of his love for the Father and us, his children, or he made the initiative to go to the cross when the cross is not what he deserved, but it's what his children deserved. He didn't deserve the cross. You did. I did. And yet his love for his children, and certainly the Father, he willingly gave himself up in our place. Like, do you understand? Like, like if we, I'm preaching to myself here. If we got this, like, if we really got that, how we would walk in love, like how certain things probably wouldn't matter to us anymore and how other things would matter a whole great deal more to us. Like, can we just even imagine for a moment what this would look like when we appeal for salvation in lost people's lives if we believed this to be true of us and true of Jesus, that he would Pay the costly sacrifice and gave himself up for it. I think that's just what Paul's doing here. Paul's making this appeal to walk in love. How's he doing it? He's saying because Christ loved us and because he gave himself up for us. That's why you can walk in love. Because he did it. Without that, you can't do that. So yes, I'm saying we should spend time meditating on and asking God to help us see and experience the love that God has for us, that Christ had for us and gave himself up for us on the cross so that we might then be taught how to walk in love. 
This is how our love ought to look. That we would even willingly take upon ourselves what our brothers and sisters deserve. How's that for doing away with ambiguity when it comes to defining walking in love? That you would be willing to take upon yourself what your brothers and sisters deserve. Walk in love. Give yourself up for a brother or sister. What does that mean for when you've been wronged? Legitimately. I mean, again, there might still need to be consequences and, 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 and certainly, but what does that mean? You know, Christ's handing himself over to death for his people was the supreme demonstration of his love for them. Again, if we're talking about what does it mean to walk in love, well, the ultimate demonstration is him laying down his life for even his enemies so that they might become his children. So this love, this costly, sacrificial, substitutionary-like love is to be the distinguishing mark of our lives. And to serve others in this way not only pleases God, but it's an imitation both of God and Christ. So Paul, here's what Paul's doing. Paul is depicting here for us with the strongest possible terms the contrast between our previous way of life, walking as the Gentiles do, and our present existence in Christ. Right? Hardness of heart. Alienated from God. Callous. Given to sensuality and evil deeds. Walking in love. Even to the point of laying down our lives for someone else. Very different. Now these kind of standards in this kind of passage are very different than the lifestyle of our surrounding world. Again, there's certainly aspects of this that our culture would like, that the people we go to work with would like. But the difference is that the framework of our motivations is supplied by the gospel, by Jesus laying down His life. Therefore, I've been set free to lay down my life. So the question is, if we're thinking like missionally here, I want, I want us to think missionally with those who do not love Jesus that we come in contact with. What is your motivation for imitating God in their presence? What is your motivation for showing them love? What is your motivation for doing right things? For imitating God? Listen, if it's the wrong motivation... Well, either way, it was right or wrong motivation. They can tell motivations. At least majority of the time. See, here's the deal. We have two options when it comes to our motivation in walking in love with lost people. I know the passage is, is particularly talking about those within the church, so I'm pushing application beyond that. 
But here's the deal. You have two options when it comes to motivation. You either walk in love because He loved you, or you walk in love because you love yourself supremely. Okay? Those are your two options. You either walk in love because He first loved you and you love Him supremely, or you walk in love because you love yourself supremely. Now think about your motivations now. When it comes to that person at work or school or your neighbor, maybe, just maybe, that oftentimes you're walking in love towards them is just motivated out of selfishness for you. But listen, if our motivation is truly the marvelous and gracious love of God behind us, maybe the world would see that and glorify Him because of that. I'm not saying that all of us do that all the time. I'm just saying think about that. Maybe there's a mixture of motivations that need to be repented of and worked through. I know I have to regularly and probably will the rest of my life. Another aspect of like our motivation that's supplied by the gospel is grieving the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us just a few verses earlier. That it's very unkind for us to live in a way that makes Him grieve when He has indeed sealed us for the day of redemption. That the Holy Spirit has put His stamp on us. Why would we want to grieve Him? So, we walk in love. We, 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 we should be imitators of God because we are His children. And we should make the initiative then to walk in sacrificial love for the church, particularly. Now here's what I want to give you in closing here. Six practical ways to walk in love for the church. Six practical ways to walk in love for the church. I did say in closing here. We're going to fly through these six, okay? Let me reread 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now listen, if you write down these six, I'm usually not prone to lists, but if you write down these six and you turn them into law, you've missed the point, okay? So just be careful. Here's my def- the definition, the working definition that I have derived from the text is that love, that this walking in love is sacrificially giving yourself up for others. Costly, sacrificially giving yourself up for others, particularly in the body of Christ. So no more futility of the mind, darkened understanding, ignorance, hard heart. That is the old way. The new way is costly, sacrificial love and giving yourself up for others. I think Paul has given us at least six examples, practical ways to do this in the verses that just preceded this passage. Number one, speak the truth. Speak the truth to each other. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth. Knowing and proclaiming. Knowing and proclaiming. Listen, I know this to be a struggle in many people's hearts. It's a struggle in my own heart. When I'm in sin, the last thing I want to be reminded, my flesh wants to be reminded, is of the gospel. Why? Because it's offensive to me in that moment. 
But what do I need most? I need to hear that my Jesus died for me, that I am a beloved son of the Father of the universe. I am his child. So let me encourage you once again, if you love the Father, you will want to know the Father so that you can represent the family likeness. Understand that your believing and acting on the truth is just as loving or hateful to your brothers and sisters as explicit proclamations. What I mean by that is the way we live out the truth is a proclamation of the truth or lies to our brothers and sisters. So why do we speak the truth? Because the Father is truth. Because He is truth. Because nothing comes from Him but truth. And because He ultimately spoke the truth to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Number two, how do we practically walk in love? We live as members of each other. We live as members of each other. Again, nothing new or radical here, but this if we living regularly thinking, I am not ultimately autonomous, that I am a part of a body, and that what I say and what I do impacts a group of people not just me. And we begin to walk in love. Because when you were brought into Christ, you were brought not just into a relationship with Jesus. You were brought into a relationship with Jesus and His church. So we live as members of each other. Why? Because the Trinity... The Father, Son, Holy Spirit are members of each other and we are made to bear God's image. And because we are made members of Christ's body and we care for Christ as we care for each other. Number three, how do we practically walk in love? By being angry at sin but not angry at another. Be angry at sin, but not angry at one another. Guys, I think we spend so much time being angry at people that we have no time to be angry at sin. And we, all, all, we all only have so much bandwidth. That's like space for... The square footage, how about that, of your affections and your anger is only so large. We spend so much time being angry at people, we don't have time to be angry at sin that we're never in the proper state or rarely in the proper state with the Father to actually help people. So if we're dealing with our anger rightly, then we will be in the state of relationship with the Father to help each other. And what could be more loving than that? Guys, also, if you love the Father, you will also hate the things that offend the Father. You will grow in anger towards the things that offend the Father. And listen, if you grow in anger towards the thing that offends the Father... 
then the body of Christ that loves the Father, that that will be good for the body, that will be loving for the body, when we abhor the things that God abhors. Why? Because these things are good for us. The things that, that, that delight the Father are good for us. The things that abhor the Father are bad for us. Number four, how do we walk in love? Labor to weariness for the sake of generosity. Labor to weariness for the sake of generosity. We work hard and affirm God's call to work hard. But we do it so we can care for others. Why? Because God's incredible work in the story of redemption has shown us nothing but generosity. Nothing but generosity. Number five, speaking to build up. We walk in love by speaking to build up. This is very connected with speaking the truth, but speak to build up. By grace, for grace, in grace. We care for the body and even ourselves when we speak to build up. Why? Because God's incredible, uh, because God's word for us is the cornerstone of this place. Jesus, who is the word, is the stone upon which the rest of the structure depends. And lastly, number six, how do we walk in love? By being kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. Six practical ways for us to walk in love. What is this being kind, tenderhearted, forgiving? It's a disposition of compassion. We often live in a disposition of condemnation. And I think that's largely because we live thinking that we are condemned by the Father. But a disposition of compassion rather than a disposition of condemnation. Guys, who are we to hold wrath for another when God Himself has none? Who are we to be harsh towards another when God Himself is not harsh towards another? Who are we to be angry when we have known nothing but the tenderness and the kindness of God? And why? I just said it. Because God has shown us nothing but tenderness, kindness, and forgiveness. Here's my last couple thoughts. The reality is, the reality is, follow me here. All of this means nothing if you know it not as a beloved child of God. This means nothing if you know it not as a beloved child of God. That's the basis of Paul's argument here. Be imitators of God because you're beloved children of God. If you only know expectations of God, but do not know these expectations as grace from a loving Father, then all you have is law and not grace. 
You see, back in the garden, Adam and Eve, what, what was going on? They began to see God's, God's commands divorced from God's graciousness. And so they began to question the love that they had from their father. I don't think he loves us anymore. I think I would feel more loved if I would just eat from this tree. But the father doesn't love me like he said. And so if you divorce these expectations and how we walk in love from a loving father, you will have not grace, but you will have law. And if this is the case, you will fail. But Jesus kept all the expectations perfectly and did so with ease. Why did Jesus do this? Why why was Jesus able to walk and persevere in this? I think it's because He never once questioned that He was the beloved Son of God. That He was the beloved Son of God. That He was the loved child of God. What's going on? Like, well, he has spent all of eternity never knowing the wrath of God as, as on him, but only knowing what it feels like to be the beloved Son of God, to be loved with intense, immeasurable affection. That's all Jesus knows. So when it comes to life of living this way and holding this expectation and, and fulfilling living out the likeness of God, like never once, unlike Adam and Eve, never once questioning, is God's law for me good or bad? It's always good. It's always good for me. And I think even in Jesus' humanity, I think that's where even when he didn't maybe understand something perfectly intellectually, he still, though, his desires were of trusting the Father, of knowing that it was good, never doubting that it was good. Because he was a beloved son of God. This is what it looks like to imitate the Father. It looks like walking in love as Christ did. A costly love, a costly sacrificial love, most certainly of God and of His people. But church, you will only do this as a beloved child of God. Being a beloved, knowing you're a beloved child of God. I mean, just reel back for a moment a time that you sinned this past week. And go, what if I, what if in that moment I was believing that I am a loved child of God? What would I have done different? What would I have done different? I think it would change everything. I think it changed everything for our Savior. Or at least impacted everything for our Savior. Let me read to you a couple passages here. Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. It says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Referring to Jesus here. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Is that hard to do if he's your father? If he's your beloved father? He said, this is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
on these two commandments depend, listen, all the law and the prophets. Right? I mean, if Jesus is saying something very monumental here. Then first John four nineteen through twenty says this. We love because why? He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. If, if, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. Sorry, I'm sorry. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What's he saying? Then in a very real sense that, that we get to live out this love that comes vertically here horizontally. And that the way we live here is very reflective and indicative of this love here. But we only love this way because He first loved us this way. We didn't choose to love Him. We didn't make the initiative to love Him. He made the initiative in our enemy state to love us and save us. So, but for those who have seen God, those who have seen God, I don't mean literally, but those who have seen God have seen His love. And they will walk in love. Christ's love. How? Because they see that God first loved them. Amen? Amen.